Hunting in Nangarhar. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. In this episode, I will read out loud Hunting in Nangarhar, first published in December magazine. I knew from specific experience that the rescue was doomed. Ruby would never come back alive. The Americans understood there was risk. They weren't stupid, but they were optimists. I was in the theater for years already. The town of Batal Hazar in the Nangarhar province across Kunar River from Jalalabad and snug in the lee of the Safed Ko Mountains is now the best place in the world for hunting humans. For 150 kilometers in all directions, the quality of the fighting is high. The fighters are trained and expert in the territory. They are professionals and take no unnecessary risks. They are lethal, but not brutal. They learn swiftly. They use late model contextual weapons, but do not rely on them because the terrain won't permit it. Where else would I be? Our mission was to control the river valley and the mountains around it. The Taliban fed themselves on poppy sails. Here in the east, the poppy came from fields stretching from the valley and across and beyond the Aret. The commanders decided this was too much territory to police directly. The farmers irrigated their land from the Karez, ancient underground channels that drew water from the winter runoff coming down the hills. When the runoff dried, they channeled directly from the river. The Taliban controlled the irrigation, so they controlled the farmer's crop. If we controlled it instead, the farmers couldn't grow poppy, or if they tried, we could shut off the water. If the farmers could not get water from the hills or the river, they could not sell poppy to the Taliban, who could not sell the paste to the Iranians and Pakistanis for rockets and C4. No water, no poppy, no paste, no money, no materiel, no Taliban. Simple as that. We patrolled in six-man squads and 10 by 10 forward operating bases made of sandbags, rocks, and camouflaged aluminum that our CO called Sierra Mike Mike, which stood for Shaolin Murder Monasteries. His name was Eben Foster. Foster grew up in a small college town in central Ohio. When he was a kid, he consumed comics and later the college's library books on Shaolin monks. He wrote his senior thesis on Zhang Song Feng, the legendary ascetic and practitioner of Shaolin Wushu. Unless he was giving orders, he usually spoke with a heavy Chinese accent. I had trouble understanding him at first. After a while, most of the guys in our unit spoke with a Chinese accent too. Whites, blacks, and Mexicans walking around Afghanistan imitating Jackie Chan. Foster was an excellent warrior, deliberate, cool, fast, funny, modest, and murderous. He carried a small tube of Savon face cream in his pack. His only complaints were about the assholes in Washington and the dust that buried itself in his pores. According to Foster, so long as we used our Shaolin murder monk stealth, we would be invisible to bullets and baneful to our enemy. He was right. Our platoon of 24 men had 40 confirmed kills in six months and no casualties. Not until Ruby. We had captured some of theirs before. When they ran low on fire, they would retreat. When they ran out, they would try to attack us by hand. So we'd dispatch them to the virgins. Sometimes we captured them. 
The Americans were civilized when they captured a Taliban. They would restrain him, interrogate him, feed him, and then remove him by arduous ambulatory extraction or by helicopter if Fortune and NATO common Kabul favored their weak. I was impressed. There was law, and the Americans followed it. They were professional. I was surrounded by professionals in Afghanistan. The Americans, the Mujahideen, French, British, they all knew what they were doing, and there were others. They don't read about it here in America, but there were others, many others, who came for the fighting like me. They liked that there were no tanks, no Hummers, no aircraft supremacy, no fire from Cape Canaveral. They liked that the quality of the fighters would answer the questions. Russians, Arabs, Pashtun, rough Chechens, Chinese, Chileans, South Africans. Soldiers of fortune who could not keep away after going home from the fighting in their own countries. The ones who had a taste for it, for hunting men. They did not seem to prize the money. Few had ideology. They came to rank themselves against the great warriors of the past. They came for the smart fighting. The war here is not as violent as the reporters say. The journalists who cover the wars don't cover the other fighting, the really violent fighting, so they don't know how to compare. Many die every day in Afghanistan, that's true. But that's warfare nowadays, death from light arms and small explosions. But there is little overkill. There are few massacres. We normally didn't desecrate bodies. For brutality, you're better off in Mexico. Juarez is the worst place on earth. Think of Algeria or Cambodia. Families murdered in their homes. Kill the whole nightclub to get to one enemy. But you relied on bad intel, so you killed the wrong 200 people. So you go down the street and do it again. Kill the wives and children so the police refuse to serve. Bodies appear, evidencing hours or even days of torture. Every finger and toe is broken and in different places, which means they weren't all smashed at once, but individually over time. Wounds that show bloodletting before death. Gums where teeth used to be. Splinters in the remains of orifices. Cheeks so swollen, no visual idea is possible. Juarez is worse than it was in Algeria or Cambodia. There is no fighting over the government in Juarez. Controlling the treasury, the public works, the land, the army. That holds no glamour for the drug kings of Mexico. They do it for the money. And their gangs do it for the killing. There is so much blood in the murders, no other explanation satisfies reason. Mexico is for meatheads. I'll leave it to my brother. Give me Afghanistan. Yes, give me Afghanistan. Last night I drove to a restaurant called Helmond in Beverly Hills to get a taste of the country and to hear the language again. They serve mostly Persian food, but there are Afghan dishes if you know the menu, and some words in Pashto. Frail nostalgia. You make us all twice poorer than we would be. To steal from us our proper memories and to substitute in their place dim aspirations of what they truly were is not enough for you. You also make us lust for what we had until we seek out desperate echoes to refresh our senses, but that instead dull what once was bright. Sly connivance to make me taste lamb where I had the fine red dust and sun of Nangarhar on my lips. The women at the table next to mine compared Fendi to Louis Vuitton and looked at me sideways, wondering how I had messed up so badly. 
that I was dining alone. I fought alongside nearly everybody there. I started with the Americans, naturally, both the mightiest and the least sure-footed. They had studied the Soviet war in detail, but the Taliban had evolved since then. Still, the Americans adapted fast. Later, I made my way into a French encampment and claimed secondment from the Foreign Legion. The French were tough, the ones the American Special Operating Forces respected the most. Then the British, who remembered being there again after all those decades and felt like they had to finish the job permanently this time. Later, the Canadians, competent and self-righteous policemen. Then a band of South Africans, former executive outcomes and sandline types, ruthless and fearless, practical, lawless, the new Vikings. Then the neutral Mujahideen, the ones with vague religion and good humor, the ones who still liked America and hated Russia, militia who wanted peace and tranquility for their hometowns but knew they would have to kill first. Then, once I felt I knew the land well enough to pass among them, I moved to the Taliban. Most of them were gray, grave bastards. A handful were conscripts. They rarely talked except to submit to Allah or exchange tactical information. Vile, ignorant men who believed in raping boys as punishment and acid and beheading. They knew nothing except handfuls of Quranic verses, family trees, and warfare. Not even the Vietnamese were this tenacious, not the Thais, not the Gurkhas, not the Apache. The Afghans from the countryside had never known a prosperous time. Happiness wasn't in their national narrative. Instead, they had blithe expectations of short bursts of gunfire, birth screams, and breathing. Their industry was shooting, their temples were rock outcroppings, and the only expression of compassion they had ever known was swift murder. I never saw them capture an enemy, but I knew they would have to kill him if they ever did, no matter what they might say about trades, hostages, or negotiations. They talked about it. The Taliban immediately killed opium users, men who kept dogs, and parents who gave their children books. They would never let an enemy outlive them. Over ten years, I rotated among the fighters, disguising myself so they would not recognize me. I learned the languages, the land, and the secrets of their warfare. I taught them what I had learned. It was important and fair to even the odds and spread knowledge of tactics among them. I hid my form under my fatigues or salwar kameez, and I hid my true voice by bellowing instead of talking and by growling when stealth required me to whisper. My only enemy was sleep. I could not control myself then. That has always been a problem. That is when my dreams would strangle me. Sometimes they made me speak or sing in other languages, and I would wake to raised suspicions. I would disappear behind a cliff or stage my death that afternoon and move on. When I made my way back to the other side, I would come with new clothes. It wasn't easy. When it came down to it, there weren't more than a few hundred men operating in the immediate area, and they were all good observers. I had to be deft. I used light, shadow, sunglasses, and a keffiyeh for the most part. Then I had other advantages. Still, it made me nervous when those men looked at me with their hard eyes and asked themselves, if they had seen me before somewhere. Ruby wasn't even a member of our unit. He was a journalist in the field for the AFP, embedded with us for the season. Marine Rotsey had paid for his college. He missed the first Gulf War by a whisker, 
but the training allowed him enough credibility to have the squad ask him for opinions, at least about movies and politics, if not the terrain. He was quick on his feet and did not put himself in danger until the night he was grabbed. It only takes once, pukes, Foster told us one morning as we sat on the dust floor of SMM Hotel Sierra, which stood for Shaolin Murder Monastery Haji Slumber, or what was known on the maps at HQ as Fort Unsheathed, our bivouac for the week's patrol. Shut your third eye just one time, and you'll be deader than Daniel Pearl. Gutierrez, our M240, tapped Ruby on the shoulder and said, That means you, my man. No half-stepping. Don't be going back to the U.S. or France or wherever without your head. They smiled at each other, and Gutierrez turned to Foster to nod. M240 Gutierrez possessed wisdom. He also grew up in New York City, which made him the only other person in our squad who realized Ruby was a Jew. As soon as they said it, I had a powerful premonition that the news was bad for Ruby. There is no lying in premonition. Ruby got nabbed on that patrol. It was quite a smooth feat, actually. The Talibs figured it well. Our fire teams had built up a reputation in those parts. We'd killed their guys, blown them up, cornered them in caves, decapitated them with missile strike, ambushed them, enticed them with two apparently lone riflemen, and then surrounded their kill team and murdered them. Grenade launched their hide, ID'd their logistical support, RPG'd their vehicles, captured them, handcuffed them, rendered them, and sniped them in the head. I wish I could have cloned us. The Talibs were dogged, though. The night they grabbed Ruby, they were following our patrol close behind, as usual. We had in mind to go through a split in the boulder single file and suppress them when they came out. They knew that we knew that they knew that we knew that just finding a firing position on the other side of the boulders would be way too obvious an ambush. So once we were out of sight, we double-timed it quietly through the split single file, and Foster kept us at speed because he knew they weren't coming through anytime soon. We split into two teams and we wrapped back around the long way to a perch overlooking the mouth of the gap. Ruby was with Foster's team. A lieutenant named Drake had us in the second. Sure enough, when we double backed, we saw six guys kneeling near the split figuring the next move. I thought I had seen eight, but it was hard to be sure unless you were among them. I could sense a sharp battle coming, and I sniffed in the cold, wet air and grinned. Drake motioned to us. We would canalize the enemy against the rock, and Foster's team would kill them. Someone's boot slipped. It happens all the time, and skipping pebbles gave away our position. The Talibs crouched and started shooting. The Iranians were giving them Chinese-made night vision these days, so they had us spotted and pinned immediately. I breathed out. This still wasn't old for me. Foster's team replied. From their vantage point, they could hit every Talib below, and they struck three immediately. The enemy took cover behind rocks and edged toward the split in the boulders. I could make out Ruby crawling on his belly back toward the top of the gap with his infrared camera. This would be heroic footage. Our team recovered and was able to lay down suppression near the Talib's toes, 
to keep them inching forward toward the split. Foster sent three of his guys to work their way down to the Haji Six. Once they got there, they'd be spraying fire down a narrow alley, a near-perfect kill box. I caught a glimpse of a Talib face emerging from cover on the way to the gap, and I squeezed my trigger, and his head exploded. I felt a tremor. His face was familiar. That was Iqbal. Iqbal believed he was over 30 years old, which made him one of the more aged fighters who still possessed his ten fingers and toes. He was pious, but no fanatic. He knew only of the Quran, his family, and his tribe. He had never been outside Nangarhar. He was totally illiterate, except for specific words like explosive and apaznist. Somehow along the way, he had picked up admiration for Abraham Lincoln, for freeing the slaves, but he used this fact to explain that he did not detest the British and Jews. He also admired Richard the Lionheart because Saladin had. He did not hate Christians or any people of the book. He had distaste for the elders of his tribe who did, especially his uncle, whom he considered weak, effeminate, and abusive of his tribal power even though he had never fought the Russians when they were there last time. He deeply admired Osama bin Laden, but felt the vanities of dyeing his beard black and exaggerating his exploits were unworthy of him. Iqbal hated the Americans for having replaced the British and the Soviets and the Mongols. He wanted them out, and he wanted in their place a peaceful caliphate where the groves could take deep root, and he could pray, finally, in tranquility. I knew all this and more because Iqbal and I had become close when I was with his unit the previous spring. Iqbal was lieutenant to a handsome, charismatic commander named Ahmad, whose remit was a broad-ranging reconnaissance and war-making patrol covering 300 square kilometers, nearly four times the ground foster squads would ever have to safeguard. Ahmad and Iqbal were friends since childhood. Iqbal was the silent partner between them. Before taking important decisions, Ahmad would take him aside to ask his opinion. When Iqbal had something to say, Ahmad stopped speaking. It seemed to be that Ahmad was a year or two younger, but Iqbal had somehow known who would be in charge. They were inseparable. I had never seen them more than meters apart. Like two deer, if one was visible, they were sure to be another nearby out of view. From time to time, we saw them embrace. The other men made nothing of it, but I had more experience in such things. Men in their unit had died or suffered terrible wounds. They were replaced as fresh supplies allowed. But Iqbal and Ahmad were largely pristine. They were fierce, calculating, and smart. They insisted on taking no risks without opportunity for massive reward. They would kill without being killed, without taking shrapnel, sometimes without even taking fire. They were marvelous. Iqbal. In another time, you would have been Gawain or Galahad. You were determined, ardent in your love, and tender. I admired him for months and sensed him noticing me. When I looked in his eyes, he would avert them and sometimes smile to himself as he turned his back or knelt to pray. I would kneel near him to pray as well, and later he would wait for me to kneel first so he could avoid me and remain pure in his thoughts as he submitted himself to God. One night, as he alone maintained the vigil, and as my moon turned bright and huge and marble white, 
and looming over the mountains, I came to him and revealed my form under my salwar kameez. He shrieked and consumed me hungrily. He had not been with a woman for a year, and I had not felt a man for longer. I watched my moon grow brighter and larger, and then I shut my eyes to concentrate on him. As soon as he finished, I saw his face overtaken with a mask of terror and shame. He covered himself briskly, and then wrapped my body in my clothing, and crouched facing the valley below. I dressed and then touched his eyes so he would forget and feel no shame. And he looked at me, his friend Shahrukh, and he smiled and knew nothing of what had happened. It was thus every night I could steal away to him from then on. I longed for his turn in the rotation to maintain the night vigil, and I longed for the moments in our timeless, endless circuit around the territory when we would stop in the cloaking terrains of boulders and forests so that I might linger with him longer. On the nights we had firefights with the enemy, I regretted the disturbance of my chance to find him alone and took no enjoyment in the battles. I paid no attention to learning new warfare. Instead, I became expert in the hiding places of the land, and I used my growing influence with Ahmad to steer us toward them. That Iqbal did not know me in between our times together made me burn more hotly, and I secretly wrenched my hair from my head in despair when I could not come to him. There were reports that spring and summer in Afghanistan of exceptionally long spells of large, unblemished, full moon waxing and waning more quickly and dramatically than usual. One night, as I crouched with Iqbal in a dewy bower outside a deep cavern our men had dubbed Rachel's tomb, I sensed someone watching. I looked up across Iqbal's shoulder and I saw Ahmad. He paused and stood silently, expressionless, staring. He saw my eyes, and he saw my face and the whiteness of my form and the darkness of Iqbal's. Iqbal didn't notice, and he didn't stop. I said nothing. Ahmad made no noise. He looked for minutes, at least, and then walked backwards into the darkness of the cave, the bright reflection of his eyes disappearing last. Ahmad made no signs the next morning that he had seen us. As usual, Iqbal was ignorant of what had happened. Ahmad perceived no guilt, no hesitation, no shame in his friend. He looked at me maybe a second longer, a centimeter closer than he had before, trying to see if he could discern my nighttime form in my daytime face. I was sure he could, but still he said nothing. For him, maybe, the insanity of the time allowed what had always been haram. Or perhaps he was mourning the loss of what had always been his. Or perhaps he thought I was a witch sent by a devil to despoil his men or his perception of his environment. Whatever he made of it, he elected to watch and wait. My old premonition returned. I knew that if I stayed, Iqbal would surely die, and I might come to some humiliation. I did not want to be responsible for Iqbal's death, and I could hardly afford to be humbled. It was only two days after this that I stole away during an encounter with a NATO force led by Italians. I staged my demise in a fiery explosion, as if I might be murdered by Italians. I blended with the rocks to watch my Iqbal and the others weep over my loss. They all wept, except Ahmad, who neither wept nor rejoiced, but stared in turn at the horizon, and then the waning, yellowing, stained moon, and then at the face of his childhood friend. I flew away and joined the Americans. Since then, I had known Foster's squad and Ahmad's were circling each other, and I had sensed our fighting before. 
but I had never seen the faces of my old friends, and I presume they had never seen mine. Today, I had exploded Iqbal's noble skull with a single 5.56mm direct-gas-fired M16A4 shell. I felt the earthquake in my stomach as I watched him perish. Kindness gave me immediate solace that I had spared him the terrors of age. Fate just as quickly reminded me that the poor boy was destined to die young in Afghanistan anyway, so that I might not congratulate myself, but instead curse myself for dispatching him with my own hand. Fate, you are our permanent enemy, and dreams are your wretched handmaids. I feared sleep as swiftly as Iqbal had died. Iqbal should not have died. Something had gone wrong, not with my skill or my weapon, but Iqbal should not have been there. How could he have found himself in such an obvious kill box? I had not known him or Ahmad to do it. They played advanced chess with light arms. Think ten moves ahead and you would not be found in a narrowing path surrounded on two sides by rocks feeding into a single fire split between high boulders. You would be nowhere near them if you were tracking an enemy that moved in their direction. There were too many chances to be murdered. And where was Ahmad? A meter behind Iqbal, no doubt, ready to pop his head out or reeling and mewling from the loss of his friend. I saw a hand creep from the rock cover. I held my fire, awaiting a clean shot to a vital organ. Someone else didn't. The gravel lit up with sparks as the shooter opened up and the hand disappeared. I held my breath. I knew what would happen next. Foster's team was already wending its way five body lengths in either direction to get clear line of fire into the covered zone where the Talibs were hiding. This would be over in minutes. Only a desperate breakout attempt could delay it, and then it would only delay it. Those guys were dead. Our job would be to keep them in place till the others could clean them up and to shoot anyone who emerged. I steadied my rifle and eased my neck in anticipation of opportunities for any long-distance murder. Unsurprisingly, I was the best sniper in the squad, and it was my preferred method of dispatch. Hence the single shot to Iqbal's head. I cursed myself. Then I cursed my skill and my pride in it. Then I cursed Ahmad for letting Iqbal maneuver into such an unworthy end, and I uttered some quiet words of longing to see him again, so that I might rejoice, and then shoot him in the shoulders and the neck. I laughed to myself as I recalled my old instinct to punish everything. Foster was too good for me. His fire team eliminated whoever was behind the rocks and then descended into the crevasse for confirmation. They radioed thumbs up. All Hadji's dead. Up top in our squad, we surveilled the gully and then the horizon line. I was not the first to see Ahmad seizing Ruby. That was Gutierrez. He heard the scuffling in the falling rocks, and he painted two Taliban grabbing Ruby 300 meters away, where he was hanging out on his belly, waiting for the Haji crew to creep their way into the gap so he could photograph them overhead on the hunt, taking fire and then getting killed. The rest of us saw a second later. We couldn't shoot. Ahmad and another Talib I didn't recognize bundled Ruby in front of their bodies as they retreated down the other side of the gap. We were two minutes away across the distance and gap in broad daylight. Foster's team would have to scramble up the hill, so it was worse for them, and there was no daylight and no moon. This would be rough, and I knew in that instant that Ruby was going to be dead soon. Join me in the next episode for the conclusion of 
hunting in Nangarhar. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.